Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. Relapse. Yeah. You quit for a few for a few months. Um, yeah, you, you, you need a nice little tea break every now and uh, then to yeah. like, uh, let your tolerance get you low to recharge again. recharge the batteries. That's what I'm, I'm yeah. going to go a whole like two weeks without watching movies and see <laughs> if I can just like, wa- just watch some dog shit and it'll totally blow me away. <laughs> also tea breaks get that testosterone up. Too. That's true. <laughs> yeah. That's how you should be doing the tea breaks is just guzzling tea while you're at it. Yeah. Um, I guess we, we aren't quite at the level of podcasting where we're selling, uh, testosterone based supplements, <laughs> Not but yet. with your help, we can, uh, this is extended clip. It's episode 79. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum and we know you need those supplements and we'll be the perfect people to sell them to you. <laughs> I'm JT White. And calling in all the way uh, from, is it the peach state of Georgia? <laughs> yeah, it is. That's correct. That's the, that's the I'll, I'll do that rather than a more specific location within the state. Uh, calling in from the peach state is uh, old friend of the show, our very first guest, film critic and podcaster in his own right, uh, Ryan Swen. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Oh, of course. It's yeah. been, uh, I think, over a year at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I was, Time flies. Yeah. That was yeah. That was in person too. Yeah, that uh, it's was strange not to be sitting in front of uh, the three of you. Um, instead, I'm just here in my room. Yeah, I know. We were talking <laughs> earlier about the transformation of the studio from you know a shabby three guys in a sister's old room to the the news setup that we have now. <laughs> Eddie just basically got a big desk, and that's pretty much. I mean, there's some posters, but the I did get new posters, and I display some DVDs because my shelf in my room ran out of space. So now there's DVDs in here. True, that's like the second layer of uh, curation work that you do. Exactly, which DVDs are going to be laid out? <laughs> yeah, which DVDs Malcolm gets to stare at while we podcast? <laughs> <laughs> also, all right, um, I want to use this opportunity to uh, announce a beef watch. Uh, not beef watch, oh, no. but. Um, I, you know, on Twitter, it didn't get much attention, but I did publicly challenge Griffin Newman to a boxing match for charity. It's because it's, there's a lot of people going through a lot of stuff right now, and I think we could use our platform for good. And so he hasn't really gotten back to me on that. And it's all good. I know he's busy. But uh, if any of the fans of the podcast want to let him know about that, uh, learn him about that, um, that, I would be very thankful to them. So that's all I want to say. Nothing. No need to get goofy with it. But yeah, yeah no, 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 no. I mean, yeah. it just makes sense. You have to get certain announcements out of the way up top. That's just how the yeah. show goes. Yeah. Anyone else want to announce me? <laughs> I think we're good to go. Yeah. Uh, so the double feature this week is uh, Simone Barbès or Virtue, uh, the 1980 film by Marie Claude Trelu, and Viva Erotica. The 1996 by uh, film, the 1996 film by La Chi Lung and Derek Yi, our second week in a row, uh, going with a little Hong Kong uh, category three stuff from the 90s on our B movie. Ryan, what compelled you to pair these films together? Well, I first off, I did not anticipate this uh, this sort of 
actually there's a number of weird sort of uh combinations or weird through lines from previous weeks uh but uh so this was not planned in terms of the category three thing however uh i wanted to go with go with some foreign films because that's what that's sort of my dedication uh but also i wanted to keep it uh nice and a mix between highbrow and lowbrow as you guys love to do and so i decided to go with that wonderful lowbrow topic known as pornography uh, both of these films deal with porn uh, albeit in maybe more oblique ways uh, than you might imagine but i think that they're both i think they're both really great films and films i especially love and which ha- which tackle their sort of various forms of i guess love and loneliness and obsession in really uh really interesting ways so basically that yeah i wanted to see viva erotica it's been i I've been meaning to see it for a while. Yeah, no, Viva Erotica, like, I had never heard of it, and then you suggested it, and it just seems like it's, like, a classic 90s Hong Kong film yeah. waiting. Like, I don't know why I hadn't heard of it before or anything like that. <laughs> and then the first film, I had never even heard of, uh, but it definitely fits that 80s French art house uh, milieu, even just, like, in how the film stock, like, the textures of the film stock look. Mm. Uh, like, that feel kind of familiar, even if I'm not familiar with the director's work whatsoever, you know? Right, right. But to start off with Simone Barbes or Virtue, what is this film? Uh, sometimes uh, you just want to hang out after work and get up to some freaky shit, even if your job <laughs> entails people getting up to freaky shit themselves. <laughs> uh, it's like a patient but never, never boring study of a night on the job and out on the town. Uh, music, dance, costumes, alcohol, and pornography are kind of our guiding light through this night. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a cavalcade of wacky characters and dreamlike environments. It just kind of goes down like water at 77 minutes or whatever, but at the same time, it still feels like a full night. Yeah, definitely. Should should note this got a re- restoration pretty recently, should at the at this year's New York Film Festival, and I was really, really surprised and really happy that that happens. I'll, I'll be giving a lot of historical context if that's all right. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so basically, this f- this film is part of the one of perhaps the great unheralded, underheralded uh, film movements, certainly French film movement, which is Diagonal, which is the name of the production company that was that that's run by Paul Vecchielli. And it, it was sort of like a, I guess, a loose collective of various directors, including Vecchielli, uh, Trelu, Jean-Claude Giguet, Adolfo Arrieta, uh, Jean-Claude Biet, uh, who basically, in, in this sort of 70s era, Trelu's film was closer to, this is her debut, it's closer to like the mid midpoint or late late period of the movement. But it's basically, in the, in the wake of 68 and all these things, it's sort of a... I, I guess it's not nostalgic, but it's actively trying to reclaim these older forms of expression, especially film expression. Uh, frequently uses like older actors, especially in Vecchielli's and uh, and Giguet's films, and they're all about these outsiders, people living more on the outskirts of of city life. And it really, they all really try to aim to capture this this feeling of loneliness and this almost disparate existence uh but they always feel very loving and very warm towards their uh towards their characters and 
Um, some some of the great great films of the movement are Femme Femme, which I saw this year, um, and which is I think one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, there from that's from Vecchia Lee. There's also uh, Fallbrook Saint Martin from uh, Giguet. There's uh, Rose La Rose, Buffy Publique, um, and these these are definitely like uh, the movement is very obscure these days i think it's sort of getting it getting a comeback but i think it's a really wonderful sort of evolution of french cinema that uh and like you said the sort of if not necessarily the exact content or the exact message or methodology of samuel and barbez even if that's not necessarily translated into french cinema at large there is something about the texture and something about the way it moves that makes it feel like it's I guess right for rediscovery. I mean, I, that that's probably maybe a bit too pat way of saying it, but I think that it uh, really captures something about what I adore so much about about this film. Yeah, I I had never even heard of this movement uh, before. Did you say it's called the Diagonal? Yeah, Di- Diagonal. That's the production company that uh, Vecchioli ran or runs. I'm not oh, exactly okay. sure. Okay, okay. How how did you guys take to this movie? You know, I took to it, you know, really well. I really enjoyed this. I kind of like how the the movie's structured and it's kind of like low budget way. You kind of get like these three main set pieces outside of the porn theater, inside of the exclusive gay club or lesbian club, I should say. Well, they're all. Yeah, true. Yeah. Well, whatever I should say. And then. (laughs) (laughs) And then. um, (laughs) And then, you know, driving the car. At night, as you know, the mm-hmm. night kind of turns to day, and I kind of just like it's kind of a rigid, you know, very low budget type structure, and you know, it does a lot with it. I think. Yeah, yeah. I also really liked it. I think that, like, I don't know what you're saying, Malcolm, about how it definitely feels like three uh, different segments that, like, I think all have like a unique like tone to them, but like mesh really well in terms of like what Ryan was saying, like relating to like loneliness and sort of isolation and being on like these fringe societies. But I think that there's a really strong sense of familiarity with all of these settings that happens and they're so particular and lived in that you just sort of jump right into it. And there are all these like inside, um, like nuances that the characters have with each other's that, um, I oh, know I really loved. Mm-hmm. I I really uh really enjoy the first chunk of this film. I would say maybe twenty minutes or so spent at the in the lobby of the pornography theater, where the sound design is so uh like precise. In you know every time one of the doors cracks open, uh hearing just a bit of the movie going on and how it kind of oscillates between like a personal drama almost of her and her coworker and a workplace comedy with their interactions <laughs> with all of the patrons. Yeah. Uh, and also just in that kind of very studied and patient art house mode, which I think really helps the comedy as well. I, I mean, whether it's comedy or just like, you know, uncomfortable humor, I guess. <laughs> yeah. The first 20 feel like if someone was to do the clerk shtick, but really well in terms of like a working class, like comedy. Cause it's just yeah. like, I don't know it. While I haven't worked as someone doing ticketing in pornographic theaters, it's that similar type of riff banter that you have in like uh, service work. Yeah, Simone Barbes, or I wasn't even supposed to be here today. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I like I like that uh, first twenty minutes too because you kind of get you know, a, a, along with the you know the personalness of it, you know, with some Simone and her coworker, you get like every single type of pervert. You know, there's the <laughs> the one who just leaves the theater without saying anything. You know, just no interaction with the ladies. The one who like likes to pontificate on like you know certain actresses that he's seeing. You know, others who just rather you know creep in the corner and look at the you know people tearing the stubs than the movie. It's it's uh it's I don't know. I just you love seeing all the different type of, of perverts, and I feel like you know if everyone jacking off online now, people don't have like you know. You just X out of the window. That's it. There's no more personal touch to it anymore. There's no community. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Remember when I was young, jacking off in porno theaters, you know? You, there was a <laughs> it used to be about community. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that scene where the guy's lingering in the hallway, like on the staircase, uh, smoking a cigarette, just kind of looking at one of the girls uh, while other patrons come and go. Uh, I think one of the longer still takes in the film, probably, uh, and at least it feels that way. It almost reminded me of Goodbye Dragon Inn, just like <laughs> someone yeah, just sure. in the ha- a horny man in the hallway of a movie theater, just kind of staring for five minutes or so. Yeah, definitely, and like it's definitely the the film manages this sort of fascinating interplay between between the men and the women, essentially, because like they. Even though, like, largely it's driven by by Simone's movement, Simone's played by Ingrid Bergwijn, uh, her her movement from these different spaces and the various ways in which she interacts. Like, in this first section, it's very active, but at the same time, like, there's this sort of push and pull between these these men, like, these various men, and also, of course, there's the, the porn audio and the porn music, especially, that plays over, that like, just plays in the mix, and it's just at times like it's cranked up so loud that it's basically all you can hear is that very, that <laughs> pulsing sort of bass bass music which is really like it, it sounds really good it's just yeah. like, it's it's this sort of strange intrusion and of course you get the the sex noises as well uh yeah it's definitely and, a headphones yeah. movie uh, <laughs> the guy in the porn sounds like wario <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite, or also before I get to my favorite like scenario that happens at that first segment, we should note probably the most telling piece of sound, or not sound design, rather set design, uh, the two giant neon eyeballs oh. uh, that lay, or that are placed above uh, the two women working as ushers, just kind of gazing back, of course, as this whole thing is like, uh, you know, the whole study of male gaze and whatnot. Uh, and then also, I before I get to uh, the crazy lady across the street, which is the best part of that for me, uh, there's also the director, of course. <laughs> yes. Uh, the yes. great line, Mais je suis le meilleur en scène. Which, I don't know, does that just mean director, or is there a distinction in meilleur en scène versus mise en scène and what kind of director that guy is saying he is? Uh, mise en scène is... No, that's that's the that's, that's just the setting. Oh, scene, okay. Because like okay. <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> no. I feel like I've heard that phrase "meteor on sen." Well, it's almost yeah, it's disparagingly. Like, it's been used sort of like as the the opposite of an auteur, basically, like exactly, someone who just yeah. like merely places things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So may, maybe that's what it is. Uh, saying he's the meteor on sen rather than the auteur. But <laughs> anyway, anyway, I, I don't I don't want to get into this film's commentary on porn director authorship. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, but it's just funny, you know. Uh, he's yeah. mad that the film's like shown in the wrong format <laughs> and out of focus or whatever. <laughs> Even an art house in Brussels doesn't give him that treatment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's a crazy woman across the street, and the camera kind of just like slowly leaving the uh the lobby you know uh from the reverse angle that we've been looking at for most of this uh is really interesting just kind of exposing that yeah there is a world outside of this movie theater in this movie uh and that's the world that we're gonna be in for the next hour or so uh because i'm pretty sure that's that's like the last scene uh or the last kind of scenario that happens before simone leaves work or one of the last right. at least yeah right right yeah uh so then she goes to a very strange nightclub uh in a, a dream of strange love as the the lyrics of one of the songs say in the subtitles at least and there's <laughs> some weird like masked sword play and uh this weird like kind of early punk-ish song yeah uh with very strange lyrics that i feel like may be lost in translation but lots of lines about being an uncle <laughs> uh, i think maybe there, there are sort of different translations of it okay uh, that's like, what i thought but like ge- yeah. yeah yeah i mean it's like generally like, sort of like a very strident feminist uh feminist song which is is, is really good i think like it or like it, it gets that sort of energy in right at the right at a very crucial juncture in the film okay i i definitely have to download a new subtitle file <laughs> yeah. uh, i had classic oh, sh- bad subs where there was a lot of bad like grammar or whatever oh, no. which is like normal for a movie like a lot of mm-hmm. foreign movies that don't have a lot of distribution have that but like uh i think the lyrics to the song were more nonsensical than the rest of the movie for sure okay so that that is something that i might yeah, have to I, check I, out i also <laughs> had a, a case of bad subs yeah i watched this on youtube and i used the subs they had there. oh the auto translate no no it wasn't auto translate okay. someone had but still yeah i still got the uncle she was nephewing him yeah she was nephewing the club yeah uh i I like i love how that song kind of contrasts like kind of the very like baroque and old music that they're playing Mm -hmm. like before Mm -hmm. they come in you know it's just like you know it's kind of a strange vibe for a club but i guess that's the point yeah exactly yeah uh and you know there are different ways to be like a cool artist and have music in your movie in 1980 you can yeah. have the cool music that's in the rest of the movie or the the punk music of night the european 1980 version of punk uh which is pretty cool i i you know i found it to be pretty fun and playful and like also contributing to the almost dreamlike atmosphere outside of the porn theater like every not everything kind of makes perfect sense but it's also not calling attention to it being as like surreal or anything like that Mm -hmm. everything's just kind of like slightly off from that point on i think i think yeah i think that the device of kind of having simone not really wanting to be there Mm -hmm. wanting her just to leave with her girlfriend who's working there but you know staying longer and longer because she's not getting off work i think that is like you get like some surreal stuff but it doesn't really revel in its surrealness in a way to where it's like oh wow isn't this strange i feel like a lot of movies can like you know have surreal and strange set pieces and kind of revel in the fact that it's so strange so much to where Mm -hmm. it's like you're not random whoa <laughs> eddie just yeah, i don't know what eddie did i right almost there. fell yeah this chair I re- gotta get gotta get a new office chair that's that's the last piece of the full newsroom studio setup a good chair sorry go on no yeah i guess i was just saying i kind of like the device of simone being in this nightclub and this nightclub being very interesting especially to an outsider but her herself not being too interested kind of creates some maybe some interesting beats within the narrative mm-hmm. yeah it's it's definitely i think one of the one of the 
best things about the film is that it never tries to like it takes for granted that that the that you're within this world that you're with Simone that you're always like I don't know if on, on her side is not necessarily the right term but it's more that that like you're always engaged with her viewpoint and like you take it as and so like even though there are definitely more ridiculous touches within the lesbian nightclub like the sort of like the insistence on on seating like these these clearly older rich patrons within the like with at at their preferred table or something like that Mm -hmm. like it always produces that sort of tension and that sort of counterbalance within uh like between say the the punk uh singer and and these older patrons like it acknowledges that there are many different facets within within this this world this sort of underground uh, sort of existence and i think also something that what what really comes to the fore in this segment but in this second part but which is prevalent in all three is that the film is fundamentally a very theatrical one like it takes the question of sort of performance performance of yourself performance of how you want to be perceived within these various different places um like you sort of see that to an extent with the way that simone and her coworker uh interact with the men and you especially see that in the thir- the third segment in which there is this constant question of identity question of who this strange man that she's driving with is uh which i think is really crucial for the film and which i think that uh obviously it's very prevalent here because there are three literally three separate full-on performances within this nightclub but i think mm-hmm. it's something that's very uh important to the to the perception of the, the film as a whole yeah also what you were saying about like i mean maybe not being with simone the whole time but seeing it through her kind of uh i don't know the perspective in this film is kind of strange to think about because in these uh performances in the nightclub you could just be like anyone in that nightclub you're kind of exploring the camera Mm -hmm. and uh, is kind of exploring the nightclub and in the first segment uh, even within the first 10-15 minutes, I couldn't quite tell which of the two women this film was even about. Like, if you mm. don't know who's on the box of the DVD, or the poster, <laughs> rather, <laughs> and you just start this film, um, you know, both of these characters are given pretty equal treatment. And then also, thinking back to that first set, what you said about it being theatrical, uh, I think even just, like, literally, that set is, you only see that, 180 degrees of it until you look at the crazy lady across the street which right. kind of breaks that theatrical feeling what what's the word for it like proscenium or whatever where it's just yeah the, per- proscenium yeah 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 that it, it breaks that proscenium i guess and makes it into a more fleshed out world for the movie but yeah that third segment is so abstracted i guess as she's just driving around in this dude's car her literally driving like it seems like he's gonna pick her up but he scoots over and lets her drive which frankly maybe that's the move like if you want to pick up (laughs) someone on the side of the road but they think you're weird be like okay you can drive though (laughs) you guys know not cruising tips (laughs) tips. uh you know maybe it could possibly work i don't i don't know maybe you give that a try and get back to us on that (laughs) well yeah i see i'm glad i'm not a dumbass because I, i wasn't i wasn't sure if my subtitles were messed up because i i i did not know the relationship between the older man and simone here and uh, you know you get to thinking you know a whole lot of things like what their relationship could be but i'm glad you know i'm glad 
it's something I didn't figure out. You know what I mean? Or it's not something I didn't figure out. Yeah. <laughs> and just like, I don't know. It's so dark and just like the, the soft, you know, uh, the street lights at night, I guess through two window through the front and back windshields uh, between them. It just, it kind of reminds me of um, what's the Claire Denis film Friday night. Uh, yeah. And the kind of like, softness of the night at light and uh, or the the lights at night in paris in that film as well uh and just like how kind of dreamlike it feels to just be driving through that uh in such a strange emotional state you know Mm -hmm. yeah the the man or he identifies himself as a croupier at at a at a casino though Obviously, that that could definitely be him just lying, but he's played yeah. by, uh, <laughs> like he's played by Kai du Cinema Critic, uh, Michel Delay, who, oh, okay. who's also in also another. He also acted in, especially diagonal films. But like, there's something like that segment, especially this time. Like, I I think I still think the first segment is my favorite, simply because it's just so pleasurable and so endlessly dynamic. But I mm-hmm. think that third segment really nails down the sort of frustration and loneliness within the film and especially just the way like he he actually does, probably uh simone probably says more than him ultimately uh but it's all in his sort of darting like watering eyes like he you can always sense like he's about to cry at any moment mm-hmm. uh and the and the moment when he reveals like she she's been commenting on this sort of this very this very thick fine uh toothbrush mustache that he has uh, throughout, throughout and towards the end he just wordlessly turns over uh, turns to her and peels off the side of it to reveal that's fake and it's just <laughs> this sublime moment of revealing like of furthering the depths of this character furthering the depths of the film as a whole and like revealing there's this sense of mystery that there's this sense of in- incomprehension that you can't really that you can't really feel and it it's this I think it's for one the first like truly fully sympathetic well like no not fully sympathetic but like there it gets at this some at this understanding of a character deeper than any other character in the film uh say for Simone and it's done all in this sort of 20 minute third segment I, it's just uh it's and it's just like there's just this strange rhythm to it where they'll occasionally spark up conversation then they'll lapse for a bit and then mm-hmm. they'll go go on, go forth and then there's this extended uh, serenade that they listen to that's that's uh, that totally breaks that rhythm again it's just such a strange strange way to conclude the film but which feels feels totally right it feels totally right for the state that or the mental space that she's in just walking at night and then now she's driving at night with someone who she doesn't know but she's forming this sort of connection with so as they uh, w- they wrap up their night, you know, uh, it ends on this this beautiful shot, like across a body of water, as the car drives away, and like the the street lights that are about to turn off as night is about to turn to day are reflected as these like long streaks over that water, uh, and it's really just like the most gorgeous shot in the movie maybe uh, is that last one. And then of course the lights do turn off as night turns to day, but not quite because it's like, it's still really dark out. <laughs> and like <laughs> that last shot is almost kind of like haunting how dark it is. Uh, once the street lights turn off. Uh, I think this is a really great film. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you brought it to the table, Ryan. I'm giving this one four bullets. 
What about you, Malcolm? I'm going to give it four bullets as well. Yeah, thank you for bringing this, Ryan, because I definitely had not heard of it before. And like you know, like you said, Eddie, yeah, that that ending is just real. It's just real perfect. Like I love the the tone that it kind of sets, and uh, you know, you, you usually get you know, I think it's a cliche is like a one like a one crazy night movie. This is a one crazy wacky night movie. <laughs> yeah, man, this we is got like going after on. hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, usually, you know, the the morning kind of you know has like a metaphorical sense of like, all right, things are going back to calm, back to normal, and then you don't really get that here because. You know, you still have the brightness of the lights and then they turn off and it's like, oh, shit, it's still dark. Um, but, you know, I love a short movie. This was really good. JT, what do you think? Um, I'm also going to hit this with four bullets. Um, I think, I don't know. I like it's definitely something that was like a little vexing and mystifying for me. I mean, maybe in part because of bad subtitles, um, but I just love this journey and particularly what I really liked was the relationship that the two the first two set pieces have to work and not really like i don't want to because they're not neither uh, simone nor her girlfriend are doing sex work but sort of like sex adjacent work mm-hmm. and that um way and sort of how that is like both of those spaces are very alienating i mean obviously you have like little like personal moments but they're like uh, cut off by like the transactional nature of both of those jobs. Like when Simone is talking to her friend in the porno theater, um, like they have to deal with men. And then there's that part where they're in the bar and Simone's talking to her girlfriend and she's with that man who they sort of had that exchange like with insults and like go back and forth. And I think it's really meaningful then that the third segment like takes place on like sort of a car ride home. I feel like that's a key spot in terms of dealing with like the alienation of work, just like that the emotional and sort of like um, the release happens there in that third segment. And I think that's a key spot where you're sort of processing and dealing with um, the workspace is is a long evening ride home. Yeah. <laughs> no, this movie is definitely very like workspace conscious. I mean, I feel like, you know, with like Viva Erotica, we got like some characters like on the outside of the industry, like looking in. Whereas like you know, this is like nothing about like uh, this nightclub or like this porno theater is like uh, glamorous or sensational or like I don't know, even like dirty to like these work. It's just something that they're used to, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's they deal with it in that way, and it's just interesting to you know see these things from that perspective. What about you, Ryan? Yeah, uh, actually, when I was last time you didn't even have bullets then so <laughs> this is an interesting really? moment yeah uh not uh, when, when we were uh, when i was on last wow uh, damn yeah <laughs> what a wild ride this podcast has been oh yeah definitely but yeah i'm i'm going four and a half bullets this is uh this is actually the second time i've seen this film this year i feel like i could watch it every i think every month basically i think that it's just so pleasurable so much like i i think that simply put like this is the uh, film i'd love to live in just like so many cool sad sad lonely people which is i feel like a great niche especially for me as a queer person i think that it really gets at that uh and yeah i i adore it all right um all right i do you mean <laughs> we didn't have the I, I didn't put the sound effects for the bullets or that I, we didn't say bullets because I'm pretty sure we've used the phrase bullets for rating since episode one. No, I don't think so. Uh, what? Yeah. Oh my god! 
Some uh, I mean, it's, in the, it's thought, in the name, yeah. but I don't think you developed until like a few episodes after I was on. Damn, uh, I'm gonna. You know what? In the editing for this, uh, the the extended clip of the week might be some old episode clips. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to dig through the archives on that one. Um, extended clips, season I'm, one remastered. Yeah, no, Ma- Malcolm and JT. So I mean, my arms were crossed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was huffing and puffing. I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. <laughs> I'll, I'll check it out. Okay. <laughs> I believe you. No, I know Ryan is very smart. He's pay, he pays attention and he remembers things probably better than I do. But I this is if there's one thing I hold a breadth of knowledge in, it's the podcast extended clip. <laughs> I'd like to think so, at least. But you know what? I, I feel like I, it's tough to challenge Ryan on this. Kind of thing. I mean, I, di- I didn't go back and listen specifically, but I'll. I'll Maybe during the break, I'll, I'll, well, I'll take a look. I'm just going to try and forget about it. Yeah. I, <laughs> you really lit a flame under Eddie right now. Yeah. I haven't seen him yeah. this worked up in uh, a minute. <laughs> since the Joker. Since the Joker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Ever since he got Joker-fied. All right. Uh, we'll be right back on Extended Clip. little editor's note here ryan was right there was no bullet ratings until i believe episode 11 it looks like uh we didn't even properly introduce it i don't know uh you killed me first on episode 11 seems to be the first film to receive a bullet rating and uh ryan owed me on my own shit like this is my show i'm supposed to know like if anyone's supposed to be an expert on extended clip it's me and I kind of let Ryan show me up there. But um, yeah, b- back to the pod. And we're back on extended clip. Uh, it's Malcolm in the Middle, everyone's favorite segment. We've been away for two weeks. We've watched so many movies since we last recorded. Uh, a little, you know, peek behind the curtain. I know we released an episode last week, but we did record that episode two weeks ago. Sometimes you got a stack. Um, Malcolm, what have you been watching the last couple of weeks? Uh, you know, on Thanksgiving, I, you know, my family didn't have a, a film prepared. They asked me, you know, to pick one night. I was like, let's watch Blowout. Let's do that. Ooh, and yes. uh, my, my mom and my grandma were not too happy about the <laughs> intro of the movie, which I forgot about. Still a great scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but everyone loved it after, after that point, you know, after that point, they kind of got past that. Um, I, I don't have anything to say. I just wanted to mention that I thought it was funny. But uh, I also <laughs> watched Jay Edgar. Watched Jay Edgar on my mom's birthday. She uh, <laughs> wanted to watch a movie of Leonardo DiCaprio in it. And I was oh, like, Jay Edgar watch rules. Jay Edgar? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great choice yeah. for a mom Leo pick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you, Jay Edgar does rule. And it's like, in, in terms of like late Clint, I think it's a little bit underrated. Just because it is, it's such a strange object. And of course, you know, people who like to play... You know, Clint Eastwood politics, huh? Like, you know, he's conservative, but the movies, they, you know, they say something different. Like, this is a perfect one for them because it's like Clint Eastwood kind of doing a history of the FBI movie with J. Edgar at the centerpiece, kind of with like, like that, like implying that the FBI was just fueled by like J. Edgar's insecurities of, you know, not being able to be gay you know not being liked by people because he talked too fast and just kind of like someone who is like a a, like a a big loner and outsider and kind of use that to create 
the FBI. And it's it looks it has a very particular like sheen to it, very like a uh, stark black and white, like it almost looks like a horror movie at some times. And uh, Leo gives a good performance with like a like an inch of fat, artificial fat on his face. Which I look up at look up at the time people were like saying like this looks so good. And I'm like it doesn't look that good. Like it kind of looks bad. <laughs> Is it but- like a smooth Jeff Bridges in uh, what's it called Tron? A little Tron. no. It's 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 more fit like it's. It's more practical than that. Like oh, okay. it is like okay. it's it's like you could yeah, it's the folds, dude. Cuz I feel like this is the era where Clint <laughs> is embracing some CGI that some people say is like he doesn't need to or whatever, but I always think it's fun when he does yeah. like, you know, quote unquote cuz it's like the he, they use it very differently, but him and Scorsese 2010's use of CGI <laughs> is like pretty humorous to me. Uh, you know, uh, but anyway, uh, I really want to watch J. Yeah, I can't wait for that. I think it's less CGI, maybe like an intense color okay. coloring that this movie went through. Okay, and then I want to talk about Japan, which I looked up this translation. Oh. Um, I guess it's Japan in yeah, Spanish. Japan. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. don't know. Yeah. All right, Ryan, I'm guessing you've seen this movie before. I haven't, but oh. I've been meaning to see Regattas, but it looks it looks great. It looks great. I don't know why this movie is called Japan. It's not mentioned <laughs> once. It's not. So maybe maybe it, it could translate into something else. But let's just call it Japan for now. <laughs> Trying to spell it backwards in my head. Yeah. nothing to it. <laughs> um, we did a Regattas episode on Battle in Heaven on the Patreon about you know a month or two back, and I was really enamored by that movie. I wanted to check out his debut. And uh, I think this one's even a little bit better than that one. It's a, uh, it's a very like uh, um, he really stands out with his style in this movie. I mean, he's shooting at a like a, a very very wide frame, like two point eight eight to one or whatever. Insane. Insane. Yeah. And so like a lot of it, um, a lot of it takes place in like uh, nature, like in the woods, and you get like a lot of these great frames of just like Ray God is just making people look so small within the woods, or like kind of like um like someone walking on a path and him just like focusing on that path and getting like all of it in a frame. And like, he, he kind of works with like this POV with, uh, this main character, uh, who's just called the man. Cause he's the man. Um, who's just traveling somewhere to kill himself. That's what he wants to do. Damn. And, uh, he eventually bunks up with this older lady in town and he's an older man himself. And, uh, he eventually has like fantasies about like having sex with her and like, uh, it develops from there. And it's kind of like uh, like Regattas will take very strange turns in the narrative, but he justifies it like visually like it is like looking at it from like a dramatist standpoint. It doesn't he doesn't really pull it off, but it doesn't really like matter at all, at least in the two movies I've seen, because he doesn't yeah. he doesn't really rely on it all too much. I think Battle in Heaven had a pretty solid arc to it as is. But I guess yeah. his style isn't really working toward that drama i guess i don't know yeah no yeah I, I i get what you mean and i think i think you're right i think it's less structured here in yeah Japan. Okay, it kind of just okay. leads kind of leads to this uh this ending shot kind of like he kind of reversed engineers like the last 20 minutes to like get like this ending shot and it, he pulls it off and it's a it's a big winner and i, I can't wait to check out the rest of his filmography good nice. stuff you can't stop winning <laughs> mr carlos regatas <laughs> you got hey you guys watch anything this week uh, I'm gonna throw it to JT. You watch anything oh, yes. the last couple weeks? I've watched a lot of things. Um, in particular, I'm still going Ozu mode. <laughs> I can't stop. <laughs> I think I'm hoping by the end of the year. Well, maybe not. I want to save <laughs> my last Ozu. The like because I'm building a fat list. Yeah. Let me tell oh, you, of course, that's gonna drop when I um 
see all the ones I haven't seen and then rewatch a few choice cuts that it's been a few years. Mm-hmm. And I want to try and cap, like, do the last one I need to do on pod. But um, with that, I watched this 1984 uh, pink film that's in the style of Ozu because at some point I also want to branch out and do... I know there are a few movies... Um, that are like influenced by Ozu and sort of aping his style. And I was like a pink film doing Ozu. Like, how's this, how's this gonna, these things that feel diametrically opposed going to mix together and uh, quite well. I mean, it's What's it called? Uh, abnormal family because there's like a little bit of uh, some, not like, not like real incest, but I'll, I'll get into it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just not real, man. Why are you even talking about it then? <laughs> um, it's just funny because it's like to see in an Ozu style, like the film opens with like um, dad, son, and daughter just sitting in their like uh, like dinner like room set up, and then they hear um, another son um, who just got married like fucking his wife like in the room above them and it's just very funny to see that in like an Ozu setting but it ultimately sort of winds up where the patriarch is really depressed and is like hitting on some girl at a bar Um, and the more major plot is uh, the son is sleeping with his brother's wife and the brother uh, gets involved in this like S&M relationship. And it's like each character has like a mini Ozu journey with sexuality as well. And I was like curious because it's like a lot of it is really funny just seeing them do things with that Ozu style, like cutting away to like open the scene with sort of like peaceful scenery or like um, some uh, more like cityscapes. And it, I just wasn't sure throughout like if it was going to hit the sentimentality because it's like going so goofy and it does. And it's uh, like obviously doesn't reach the heights of Ozu, but of it's fun to see someone play around in that sandbox. Nice. Ozu uh, with pussy. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that you're carrying the torch for pink films. It's been uh, I mean, I've watched some category three in the meantime, but I haven't watched any pink in the last couple of weeks, I'm glad you picked up the slack for me. Absolutely, no, you you were an, a big inspiration when I was when I saw those tits on screen. I couldn't help but think of you, Eddie. Yeah, they've been calling Eddie the Pink King at the radio. Watching this, Mr. Not. Pink. They have not. They're calling him Mr. Pink. They have not. Instead um, of Mank, it's Pink, and it's about Eddie <laughs> watching Pink. <laughs> it's about the screenwriter for Hisayasu Sato. <laughs> um, but along with that, uh, today I watched uh, a real Ozu film. Like the last short one that I have to do uh, is I Flunked But um, from 1930. And it's like, I think this is the first like sort of like straight up like comedy that I've seen him do. It's sort of like three stooges in a way in the beginning. And I really like that, but it's about um, like five boys who are in college um, and are trying to uh, like cheat their way through finals classic. (laughs) Um, And they're one of the guys like is writing um, 
like he, he they write the test answers on the back of his shirt Ooh. and then they're like lifting up his shirt during class uh but then for the big final his mom takes the shirt to the laundry <laughs> and just like it there are so many wacky hijinks that lead up the film that I was like oh I really dig this but then it sort of takes a more serious tone in the latter half where it's uh one of the fellas uh sort of takes the fall uh for the other boys and he gets got caught cheating and he flunks and he has to um he's faced with the prospect of like going back to college again and the other fellows graduate and then it sort of ends on the note of them graduating and like being mournful for college because it's the depression in Japan and uh and, like they can't find jobs um Damn. but i think he uh, he, he the, that other guy's just happy to be going to school still, <laughs> uh, um, and it's like funny on that note. It's mostly just like a a sort of interesting curio. Like I even the Ozu that are like lesser are still good, and it's just neat to examine like little threads that take place throughout. Like um, there's more uh, cinephile Ozu. I wrote down the name of the like. There's a silent picture that. Um, they have the poster for Charming Sinners, mm-hmm. which seems like a good one. But it was a, it was a fun time. <laughs> nice. Uh, Ryan, what about you? Have you watched anything recently of note? Yeah, definitely. Well, I've been mostly watching things for uh, my own podcast, so I'll save those. But I think, well, so the two that I wanted to talk about are uh, a few weeks ago, I watched uh, Claude Chabrol's The Bench of Desolation, which is this hour-long sort of uh, made for this series of Henry James adaptations. And this is actually one I've been wanting to see for a long time. It actually only just got subtitles. Um, and it's just, just so wonderfully acidic. Very, it, It's very shippable in, in the way it's basically about uh, this sort of doddering bookseller who is, uh, who is trying to get out of this engagement to a woman who says that she will uh, sue him for for allegedly because he made some promises to her in, in writing that uh, that she is confident will be will be held up in court and so and so as a compromise she forces him to pay black almost uh, like blackmail money or like a set of installments over a number of years and it tracks his sort of and, it's, and it tracks as he gets married to his uh, new girlfriend, his sort of dissolution, destruction, the the complete uh, the complete devastation of his family unit, and then she reappears, and it's at the halfway point, and it's this sort of uh, tête-à-tête for the rest of the film, and it's just this, it's just so wonderful. His his world is always one that I cherish uh, returning to. And yeah, like it's you know it's an hour long. It's maybe more. It goes in, goes in some 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 dep- surprising places uh, that I didn't necessarily expect. But especially there's this one wonderful scene where he is consulting with a lawyer, and in this one shot, in this one tracking shot, he has to wait as this lawyer gets a cigarette, uh, gets a cigar, uh, is sniffing it, takes the takes as much time as he can to. To prepare the cigar exactly the way he likes, and then ask uh, our our uh, protagonist for what he what he's asking about, and it's just this—it's so wonderfully cruel in, in the way that Chabrol can, that only Chabrol can really do. Um, and for the second film is one I watched uh, yesterday, uh, which is this 
Iranian film uh, called Simple Life by Shirab Shahidi Celes, uh, which I, I've been meaning to see his work, and he worked in both Iran and in Germany. Uh, but this is it's not his debut, it's certainly among his earlier films, and it's this sort of, also another short uh, 80 minutes, but it's sort of in the vein of, it almost, almost reminds me of Ackerman in a strange way. It's about this young about this young boy who who's going to school um and is and lives with a father who's a fisherman and a mother who who does the work around the house but it's almost abstract in a certain way it's it's it basically focuses the much of the action of the film is as it as it stands is almost entirely located in the way uh the young boy either runs or walks um from from place to place and there are just so many scenes of him just running from the background to the foreground or vice versa um, to go to, say, the, the shore where he picks up the fish or to the to the marketplace where he drops off the fish or where, when he goes to give the money to his father who's at a bar. And it, it, it goes in some very devastating, uh, emotionally devastating places. But I think what's so great about, is, about it is that it refuses to sentimentalize them at all. It's all about the sort of routine, about the mundanity, and yet there's in the way that Shahid Celeste shoots, it's this there's this great tension in which she builds up these very long shots and then cuts immediately to another angle for like a second and then cuts back. It gives a strange rhythm and it has a and at the sort of focal point of of the film, it's deployed in this the most bleakly. Uh, unsentimental way possible. It's a it's a really really great film. Wow, I, I mean, back on the first one you mentioned was a Chabrol, so that's like a deeper cut for him. But I oh yeah, definitely. I haven't seen anything of his. <laughs> uh, what would what would you say is like a a good entry point for Chabrol? I think uh, Le Boucher, uh, the Butcher from okay. 1970. I, I actually have that one downloaded. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's sort of like a perfect primer because it. It's one of my favorites. Uh, it 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 is so perfectly constructed. Like it's, you know, it's about a serial killer, and it's and the sort of strange interactions he has with the school teacher, mm-hmm. and there are just some sublime moments of of like fun cruelty that uh, <laughs> that that the film get gets into that are that's I still think about and just enjoy immensely i think that's a that's a good place to start i think though there's other ones like later on it's like less ceremony which i haven't seen yet but which i know a lot of people love um yeah Chappell has a strange he for a while i think he was one of the bigger french new wave directors especially because he was so he was so productive but i think he's sort of fallen out of uh recognition hmm. strangely um like even relative to say Rivet or Gudar. So yeah, Chabrol's Chabrol's great. I, I need to explore a lot more of him. I also have another big confession about a blind spot of a major director. Uh that would be Kenji Mizoguchi. I mm. saw uh Osaka Elegy in my Japanese film class in like I don't know, two thousand sixteen or something. Uh right. it was like one of the first movies I logged on Letterboxd, so maybe it was like two thousand fifteen even. Uh, and I liked it, but I didn't remember. I don't remember anything about it. I just remember liking it because it was that long ago. But I watched another one of his finally 
uh, <laughs> actually just today uh biju maro's famous sword also just known as the sword which i think is a much better title uh from 1945 and uh there, there's a great line of dialogue here where it said that the blacksmith and the warrior were brought together inside the soul of the sword uh, and it, it and I mentioned this in my letterbox log about how you know uh, to achieve greatness you have to have that the mastery of the craft that is on display in the sword maker protagonist and the passion and spirit of the warriors you know uh, and so this is like a really great film about that kind of push and pull between the technical and the spiritual even. Uh, so yeah, Kione makes swords and his benefactor uh, was using one of those swords defending his lord in a battle and the sword broke. And uh, so when his, you know, he was castrated metaphorically and he was all uh, mopey going back home and then some guy comes along and he's like, dude, I actually want to marry your daughter. I know you're like in, not in a good place right now, but I would love to marry your daughter. Uh, he says no. The guy gets really mad and kills him. This, guy's, uh, this guy Naito, who's like the madman who wants to marry this guy's daughter, uh, he kills him. So the sword maker protagonist feels this deep shame uh because his benefactor was killed uh right after the sword that he made for him uh you know broke in battle and also the daughter who was you know uh being almost uh, you know, put up for marriage, basically, also wants to, you know, take revenge for her father. So the guy who, you know, he, he gets called back to make one last sword. Uh, he wants to quit the sword making game, you know, it's wronged him in the past, but he just has to do it. And uh, the spirit that he needs to make a great sword is embodied through like almost a ghost of the daughter. It's crazy because the daughter is off. Uh, trying to find the guy that killed her father. Uh, but then while they're striking iron and making the sword, her like hologram almost appears in this like translucent image and she works with them on making the sword uh, in like a really incredible uh, like transcendent piece. And it's like, it seems like this is minor Mizuguchi. Everyone I follow gave it like a three or a three and a half. Uh, but I, I absolutely loved it, which means that there's no doubt I'm going to find like masterpiece level films in his catalog for sure. Oh yeah, no question. I I've seen like seven Mizuguchi's, which is a very small percentage of his uh, his oeuvre. But I do I think he's really great. Sancho the Bailiff is one of my all time favorite films. Yeah, yeah. I watched like the, the I watched Women of the Night uh, last month, and that's so brutal. It's it's <laughs> such a brutal film, and it, it's only seventy three minutes. Like in the first ten, like there's enough brutality for like four films for the four length film so Jesus. yeah it's yeah it's 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 a great film but like it's it's so bleak yeah uh, no this one is jam packed this one is i think 63 minutes and yeah. it is not light on incident at all oh yeah uh, even and even then there's still time for him to squeeze in those you know uh nice long takes of just like tracking toward a woman who's looking somewhere uh just like amazing tracking shots in this whether they're capturing action or kind of capturing the quiet moments in between the action uh and you know the the human soul is represented by being good at 
appreciate your craft and also by like cool long takes. Uh, so yeah, high recommend, <laughs> high recommendation for that one. Another old master that I, uh, you know, another notch in the bedpost for this one. I saw another Clint Eastwood film, uh, 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 2003's <laughs> mystic river. Uh, you know, and it's about the inherent trauma of being a Boston guy, you know, and uh, <laughs> I have no sympathy for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Felipe Furtado uh, very rightfully identifies the two movies at play here, the Bacon and Fishburn, like cold procedural and the uh, Robbins and Penn melodrama. And I think that those two approaches seem to be like the two poles that this uh the cinema of Eastwood kind of moves between in between throughout his whole filmography. And I think it's a really like, uh, I guess stark comparison here of those two modes here, uh, in this film. And, uh, yeah, it's like really harrowing in terms of the melodrama. I mean, we've sang the melodramatic praises of Clint Eastwood on this podcast quite a bit, but I was even more taken with the cold procedural element of it. We talked about wild things on this podcast and <laughs> Kevin Bacon in that one. Uh, and he's fantastic in this one too. And so is Fishburne. And I feel like Clint's like, I don't know his, his sentimentality uh, that like shines through even in the darkest, you know, uh, parts of humanity. And of course his humanism that comes through even in the darkest aspects of humanity, uh, is so beautiful and like heartbreaking. And it's also just like visually one of his darkest films. You were talking about it with Jay. Yeah. Uh, this one is just like, it looks like the poster a lot of the time. Just a <laughs> lot of dark blue running through it. Uh, really beautiful film. I, I loved it. No, I mean, speaking about Eastwood humanism, it is like J. Edgar's such an interesting movie just because J. Edgar Hoover is the target of his humanism and like there's a lot of stuff you know that depicts him in a pretty bad light but there's you know like a um a gay romance subplot with uh I was gonna call him Archie Hammer Army <laughs> uh, Army <laughs> Hammer and it is like it it goes deeper than you'd expect him to go and he gives he dedicates a lot of time to that subplot and there's some real devastating scenes regarding like Jadger's the Jadger and uh, army are kind of a little older and Jagger's like, you know, I think I'm just going to get a wife. Like, why not? <laughs> and then like army hammer just like completely breaks down. It's like, you can't talk about that way in front of me. Like it is <laughs> like, it's insane thinking Clint Eastwood, you know, directing the scene too. Yeah. There's even a kiss. There's a little kiss. Um, but yeah, J Edgar mystic river humanist Eastwood. Yeah. I didn't, we, we weren't planning on doubling up on Eastwood in the middle segment, but that's what happens. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, We'll be right back on extended clip uh, to talk about Viva Milano. I mean, you know, a lot of experimental film is that though. Like, I feel like I've seen the, the oh, yeah. deeper I get into film studies, it's like some of the stuff that they showed me, it's like, if this was an intro to film class, some of these people would be like, all right, I'm done here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to do this. Or, or <laughs> even, or even our, yeah. Or even our dear, dear Godard, uh, turned oh, 90 course. today. Yeah. You know, he, I mean, he, second he's... episode of the pod, we talked about oh, him yeah. showing, you know, piss porn. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and he has people shitting on camera and, uh, in goodbye, uh, the language. So. Oh, but of course that is so much more meaningful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
look, if you if you can't take him at uh, philosophical conversations while dropping loads in the toilet, uh, you don't deserve him at his filming his dog for 20 minutes. <laughs> hell yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, we're back on extended clip, but not quite in the next review. I just wanted to say that on uh, the Patreon, $2 a month at patreon.com slash extended clip gets you the extended clip after hours podcast everybody's second favorite podcast <laughs> only to the extended clip podcast actually I, you know what i'm hearing eddie some people even like it more than the regular podcast look the numbers don't lie those unlocked episodes you know i'm not going to say they get more plays but it gives me some secret stats about who's listening to those Ooh. and I, that's all i'm saying yeah. Th- those are fan favorites <laughs> i'm just snoozing through these regular ones just <laughs> yeah. like i'm saving the good shit for the patreon yeah we brew coffee during the normal episodes and then jt finally wakes up <laughs> yeah. for, the, uh, for the patreon you should see the insight we drop on the patreon episodes it's, it can only be described as next level well what was the uh, insight about uh like it, uh, on last week's episode like if uh, if someone goes and signs up for the Patreon right now. They get an email that says, hey, thanks, you know, all that jazz. They get the... the and the, the email's ar- nothing to scoff at. Hey, nothing <laughs> to sneeze at either. It's a nice handcrafted uh, HTML, you know, 80 characters or so welcome. <laughs> With an RSS link uh, that you would import into your podcast player of choice and uh then you would pull up the newest episode which is on of course jess franco's christina princess of eroticism or a virgin among the living dead we've been getting freaky with it recently yeah that was i mean these films involve pornography that we're talking about on the main feed for this episode but that one is pornography in the softcore variety and you know this coming week uh our guest right now ryan you're you're gonna be on the patreon isn't that right oh definitely uh what what are we talking about on your patreon episode bound for the fields the mountains and the seacoast directed by nobuiko obayashi 1986 all right, well, sign up and you'll get that. Uh, my very first Obayashi film, other than House. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get see, into that. We'll, we'll, see what I, we'll see what I have to say about that. Uh, but only if you cough up. <laughs> <laughs> two bucks. It's only Give two dollars. fucking money. All right, all right, all right. We're back on Extended Clip. <laughs> Viva Erotica, 1996 film. Uh, La Chi Lung and Derek Yi Tung Sing. Starring. Leslie Chung, Karen Mock, Shu Key, with guest appearances by luminaries such as Anthony Wong playing another legend of Hong Kong sleeves, Wong Jing. I mean, does it get any better than that? Uh, Leslie Chung plays a director whose last few pictures uh, have not been successful. And he finally gets some funding, but it is from a triad producer to make a category three sex film uh, with Shu Ki, who plays an actress named Mango. Uh, (laughs) The push and pull of work versus artistry and work versus the domestic involving his relationship with his girlfriend, Karen Mock, who is a police officer. (laughs) 
Uh, they and also, you know, film as art versus product kind of keep the momentum of this film going alongside of just like a pleasant supply of jokes and film references and just like a, a nice who's who of 90s Hong Kong cinema almost. <laughs> This one's for the filmmakers. I yeah. do have to say, this is this is. Uh, if you're a filmmaker listening right now, raise your camera up because this episode's for you. All right, and I yeah, and like you know something you know it's not like day for night. It's not like for that you know fucking garbage. <laughs> shout out, shout out, Godard. Happy birthday. It's not romanticizing <laughs> the, the process. It's a uh, happy birthday, Godard. Yeah, happy birthday, yeah, JLG. Man. What a legend. But uh, it has a very uh, sober look at um you know just making independent low budget films and you know i feel like um on this podcast we've taken a lot of inspiration from like you know matt farley roger watkins we get really fired up on that stuff because it's like oh wow it's like you could make a movie for not you know five million dollars or five hundred thousand dollars whereas this one you know it has more of a, a balanced relationship it recognizes the moments in which it can be bad but uh, I feel like it's more focused on like the details of like film set and just what could go wrong. And it's, you know, it's just, a, it's, it's an interesting ride. And also like it with what you're saying there, like about the community of the film set, yeah. I think is interesting. Cause it like definitely touches on like the very exploitative nature of filmmaking. But I think ultimately like lands on some more gentler communal aspects of it. People growing, sharing, yeah. having a ball. It could, it's not all just torturing women. Yeah. You can have fun too. <laughs> it takes the good and the bad. It's just giving you, you know, a real depiction here. Uh, Ryan, uh, why, why this film in particular? Uh, I mean, I know this is kind of like a, I, something of a Hong Kong cult classic. Uh, right. Not many people. I, I think before that someone else logged it like uh in between you telling me uh about it and the podcast but other than that i think uh it was the classic instance of a hong kong film where my only uh letterboxed friend who had logged it was sean gilman oh yeah uh, and I mean, now yeah. a few more have logged it thankfully yeah <laughs> but why, why was it this one that you wanted to bring to the pod in particular well i mean you know, I've been meaning to watch a lot of the films. Uh, Sean is good friend, first person to publish me, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, nice. He's a great Seattle friend. Uh, and like his, his cinema, the Chinese cinema list is one of my favorites. Um, and it was ranked quite highly on there. Um, and it still is ranked quite highly. And like, it's always been one, like basically all the ones in the top you know, 100, 150. Uh, I wanted to see all of them. And Viva Erotica, like, especially because it was lesser known and because it was so openly about like a disreputable subject you know and and, and a category three film in its own right and i thought it would just be a great sort of pairing with simone barbez in terms of dealing with the porn industry and this one is definitely much more about the porn industry and i think that it you know i was pretty sure that it would be something i would quite take to and and, and indeed i did I, it, it's a film like I quite love and I think that it gets at the, the sort of nature of like what I love about Hong Kong films and how they're able to manage the best ones are able to manage all these different tones all these different conveyance uh, these methods of conveyance because you know there are so many different influences running on them both the sort of great flowering of the new wave and the second new wave but also the not so secret involvement with the triads and the rapidly changing sort of landscape 
economic social landscape in Hong Kong. So I, I think it manages to get at all those really well through this very small, very um, focused depiction of the of the artistic process, which at the same time is able to include all these different things, like a Wang Jing cameo or like a Anthony Wong as Wang Jing cameo. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, for those who don't know who Wang Jing is, uh, I mean, the film maybe doesn't quite give him his fair shake. Although, <laughs> if you are just strictly on that hustle mentality, you would side with Anthony Wong as Wang Jing, a uh, returning <laughs> champion from last week's Category yeah. 3 selection, of course, uh, the sleaze god of Hong Kong, uh, but uh, or one of them, at least. Uh, I, I feel oh, yeah. bad giving him that title preemptive, <laughs> but, uh, you know. Uh, he's, but Wa- he's definitely one of them. Yeah, yeah, but Wong Jing is up there too. Uh, he, of course, directed a hundred films and wrote a hundred fifty uh, <laughs> titles, such as "Hail to the Judge," "Royal Tramp," "God of Gamblers," "High Risk." Uh, maybe City Hunter is the most famous one, the Jackie Chan film, uh, but also just like real bottom of the barrel garbage work, like "Fight Back to School 3, "I Corrupt Cops," and "Raped by an Angel for the Rapists Union." <laughs> Yeah. And the and the Donnie Yen uh, Enter the Fat Dragon remake. Yeah, also the Enter the Fat Dragon remake, which is I think one of his pop most popular films on Letterboxd. Uh, because it's so Yen. new. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah. It's a 2020. Oh wow! I didn't realize yeah. this was this new. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, I feel like I've been hearing about this film, but I don't know. Yeah. Fat 2020 suit. is a slow year, I guess. Fat oh, suit yeah. enthusiasts got to check this out if you're into that. I, I've, you know, I've seen a couple positive ratings on it. Might have to check it out. <laughs> Might have to check it out. But back to this film. Uh, now that we've introduced one of the, even though you know Anthony Wong's cameo is only like three minutes, if that, it, it's a, it's a decently lengthy scene for like a walk-on cameo as it is. But mm. uh, I feel like the Wong Jing presence is kind of a structuring absence in this film and like uh, the different directions you can go in the film industry in Hong Kong at that time. Like, are you going to get funding from triad guys? Are you going to work on Wong Jing sets? You know, (laughs) are you going to try and be a Wong Kar Wai guy? (laughs) Are you going to fail and kill yourself? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and, and the funny, yeah, I mean, I don't know how funny it is, but the guy who kills himself, the character is named Derek E, one of the writer directors on this. Uh, and he's played by Lao Ching Wan, who is the guy from A Hero Never Dies. Yep. Oh, uh, and yeah. from another Johnny Toe right after that or before that, back to back with it running out of time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's he's one of the also another key sort of Hong Kong. Like he's in uh, one of my favorite Johnny Toe's uh well, there's the Waikai Wai Fight film, uh, too, too Many Ways to Be Number One, but there's also My Left Eye Sees Ghost, which is just an incredible film. And he, like, he does both this sort of action and this sort of uh, romantic comedy vein really yeah. well. But yeah, he's, he's great. Well, that scene where he jumps off the balcony definitely reminded me of A Hero Never Dies, where it's totally mm. like breaking realism in a way that is almost comical, but still the expression of the character is still very felt in that moment. And it is like yeah. kind of heartbreaking when he kills himself there, oh, yeah. even if it is played as a gag, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when he takes that beautiful swan dive. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of interesting because like you feel like him seeing some young experimental filmmakers trying to make you know movies such as he did would you know maybe get you know give him a little pep in a step you know like, oh the younger generation's going to take care of it but i like how he interprets that he's like no nah, i'm gonna kill myself <laughs> <laughs> i don't know it's so palatable to me like especially just how immersed it is in the hong kong cinema culture like i feel like 
when American films will do this type of like non-narrative digression and have sort of like a self-referentiality to it. I like absolutely fucking hate it. But like the first scene with just him like fucking so intensely and it's like the <laughs> like mythologizing himself as on a porn set i knew i would love it from then i was like fucking sold also i feel like that's almost like a trope of movies about movies where the opening scene is where it's revealed that it's that a movie about a movie because you're in a dramatic scene and then you hear cut and the camera pulls back you know Mm -hmm. Uh, but then it even subverts that by it being a dream after (laughs) that in revealing that it is his actual job but not as an actor as a director Uh, and it's just such a weird like mix him up of all of those different kind of uh, I don't even want to say tropes but like constant happenings of movies about artists or even filmmakers in particular it's always finding creative ways to go around those things that feel familiar yeah, definitely i mean with the with the um with karen mock biting into his neck it reminded me of body double honestly like that yeah sort of definitely with the vampire yeah I, I was thinking of body double too and i was like it's not that direct of a comparison i can't just always say it's a De Palma. <laughs> <laughs> you know, i can't it's say a... De Palma directed every movie but it did it did remind me of body double as well it's body double meets entourage <laughs> <laughs> For a new generation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So with his producer, they go to meet this executive producer, this uh, finance financier uh, who is like a shady triad guy uh, who also is involved with Shu Key. And he has this crazy nonsense pitch meeting where he tries to make it uh, dumb and dumber and seven or dork and dorker (laughs) in 77, uh, which frankly, you know, uh, a Hong Kong ripoff of seven and dumb and dumber combined (laughs) at this point in time would probably be pretty good. (laughs) Throwing some some sex in there, some tantric sex. Yeah, yeah, sure. A little something for everyone now. (laughs) I, I love the the big ups to the American auteurs in this one. You got, you know, shouts out, or not even American, but the non-Hong Kong auteurs, because you got the Kislowski poster in Leslie Chung's apartment, too, of Three Colors Blue. And then uh, outside of uh, the theater where they watch the Midnight movie, there's a poster for The Cable Guy, uh, directed by Ben Stiller, of course. And one of the guys on set is always rocking some film t-shirts. Yeah, he's like got there's... a Taxi Driver one and a Blow Up one, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 That's great. I, I spotted one in the, like, towards the end, a guy wearing a, a Can 90, 1995 shirt as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the befuddled younger kid who comes yeah, in yeah. a cup, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah. get to the cup. We'll yeah. get to the cup, oh, ladies so and gentlemen. Good. That kind of reminds me of, like, Kiyosha Kurosawa's, like, debut film, which is, like, a, a softcore porno comedy, kind of similar tone to this one. And, like, there's a scene in a character's room where you just see he has, like, old Howard Hawks movies listed on a bulletin board. <laughs> like he's going to watch them later. Yeah, it is sick. It is. Sick. I think it's called Kandagawa Wars. Good movie. Damn, yep. list representation. Uh, yeah. yeah, Kandagawa Pervert Wars. Oh, okay. even better. Even better. Even better. So uh, after some debate, they do get on set. Uh, you know, uh, Leslie Chung's character is risking his artistic integrity, but you got to pay the bills somehow. 
uh, and even though Karen Mock is a cop, she'll let him do some porno, uh, which, you know, the legal issue we'll, we'll get into, I guess, when we get to that. <laughs> they have a whole day of just shooting handheld, and uh, we watch, like, the focus pollers just kind of running around following <laughs> the handheld very sloppily. And I was like, is that really how it works? And then they watch the, mm-hmm. they watch the dailies, and it looks like <laughs> the beginning of Chunking Express. <laughs> I've been a bad AC before once where like that's happened and like they look back at the footage like wow you were the reason why this looks completely like shit it's like well sorry about that uh there's a great exchange though there there where he's like you know nonsensical movies can be good too the producer telling him that and then they go to that midnight movie uh and see that like human uh pinwheel or whatever wrestling move being displayed <laughs> oh that's awesome whatever yeah. grindhouse movie they're at yeah. which is I mean, fucking I, sick i'm pretty sure it's a Wong Jing film but i don't know which it would one, make sense if it was a Wong yeah, Jing yeah. film. yeah i mean i feel like what differentiates it from like a lot of the movies about filmmaking filmmaking that i hate is this is like sort of confronting the pretension of like treating yourself as like an artist versus like mm-hmm. i don't know doing it as a craft and i think it lines up pretty well with like obviously the side that we fall on where it's just like i don't know he's just doing the work making it fun like having a good time well it's also just like anytime someone's having fun it means someone else is stressing the fuck out kind of exactly like it it always makes sure to have that balance whether it's the crew being in despair uh while leslie chung is trying to figure things out and like actually doing his process or him hating it while there the crew is in their groove you know Mm -hmm. also i feel like a lot of like movies like particularly american movies about filmmaking tried to build some sort of like mythology around like what they're depicting it's usually like a famous filmmaker or actor like in a a biopic or what you know whatever whereas this one is more like focused on the specifics about like making you know category three hong kong films and like you know like you said how the police might get involved because you know there's legal boundaries there or just uh i don't know just things specific to that scene It, it is like uh, it's it's an informational movie for as entertaining as it is. It does yeah. like kind of give you some uh, points to where it's like, yep, this is this is what happens. <laughs> and right. If you're a casual film fan, you know, always wanted to know what's going on behind the camera. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah. I think in terms of just the grand scheme of the films about filmmaking, this definitely ranks. High, and I don't even want to put it in a box just for yeah. that either. Uh, but it does definitely rank high among those kind of films. Um, it, it's definitely not romanticizing it at all. I mean, the scene where they shoot uh, guerrilla style on the street where, uh, you know, uh, Shu Key is being molested in the, the phone booth and then all these people are just gathered around and then there's just like this kind of deep sense of shame, even though it's almost played for comedy. It is like a really harsh scene, you know? It's uh, it's almost like a traumatic scene almost. It, it, but there is also the comic relief of just like an old lady being like, why are they shooting this here, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And of course, his mother shows up there. Oh, of as course! Well. Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> yeah, and and their relationship is actually really interesting because it's like it's not mm-hmm. really in that many scenes. Like she's maybe in three, four scenes, but like it definitely gives this great grounding sense. And like it's, I think it's lovely that she's not condemning his sort of decision, his sort of uh, his need to to get money. But like it's at this, like it managed that just that balance well. Like it. And the same with the Karen Mock scenes too, to a large extent. Like it, it never feels like it's totally 
it's totally cloistered within that sort of filmmaking world, that filmmaking bubble. Like it absolutely goes outside and moves and makes sure that you get the sense of everything that's going on with uh, Leslie Chung's um, sort of psyche throughout the film. And and also for I think that so, one of the things that I love about the film is that it's able to well I think the basically the performance of Leslie Chung and Shu Chi are so key to me because on the one hand Shu Chi of course the icon of Ho Shao Xin's uh, 21st century filmmaking basically and I think this is her f- debut I think and she's amazing because she's able to over the course of the film make the like make her character which is introduced as very ditzy very clueless sort of uh, no, not really an actress, but more like this: the producer placing her, the executive placing her in there, so that you know he can finance it. Um, it she gradually, from the very first scene, basically transforms it until she's like she's this, you know, very confident, very uh, like a, a woman who knows what she wants and she knows the economic realities of what she's in, and she has this amazing monologue and. Uh, where she talks about going from going from Taiwan to Hong Kong to try to make a living, and at that very crucial moment, she switches from Cantonese to Mandarin, and like there, that that switch is so key in in terms of understanding her revealing another aspect of herself, uh, which which I, I just love. And then Leslie Chung, uh, for me, Leslie Chung is always I, he's one of my favorite Hong Kong actors, certainly, but I think. So much of it is in terms of this strange melancholy, the strange sad presence that he has. And this has never been the same for me after I watched uh, Patrick Tam's film Nomad from 1982, mm-hmm. where he's very young. And this is, you know, far removed from the, the Wong Kar Wai films he's in, in which like you sense the vitality of his youth that at, at the close of the film feels like it can never be restored. And of course, the fact of his early suicide is definitely very apparent throughout the film and throughout it's sort of even though he's not necessarily old you definitely get the sense of it's aging his um both his and the characters trying to find uh their place in the world and trying to find their sense of identity and their frustration at being forced to do this work that they feels beneath them um which which i uh which is i think very key to what the film gets at for me it's at at both this very wild, this very fun time, and you know, had a great time for uh, watching it, but also it's very, like, it made me quite sad at moments, and mm-hmm. the and sort of like the, um, just the way, especially the last turn or the last couple turns that the film takes, it definitely gets at this sense of almost impossibility of a dream, which I think is sort of which is resolved in a way that I think is quite beautiful, but certainly at that moment it's quite um, tragic. I also I hate to bring it to everyone's least favorite segment, mispronunciation corner. But I think <laughs> uh, that maybe four films we've talked about her in, I have said Shu Qi. When it, I guess it is Shu Chi. Okay, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I. I. I you know, uh, a more sneaky podcaster may have, uh, in hindsight, edited everything. Live <laughs> with my mistakes. No, no, Someone. It's, it's someone's fine. mad at I, us. Oh, sorry. It's. Yeah. There, there's. There's been much worse pronounced well not necessarily of shuchi but like of other uh chinese names that i've noticed on this podcast not, no, no not on this podcast but <laughs> from, no 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 you, you guys are good <laughs> i i 
tr- it might not sound like it. I do try. I, I, I do try with the names. Uh, but anyway. Um, Even some English names, you know, I'm fucking yeah. up on the right. Yeah, of course. Well, <laughs> yeah. English names, whatever. Uh, but I, I will also say I didn't notice the switch in dialect. But in yeah. hindsight, that does completely change that monologue, which was mm-hmm. very impactful even not realizing the dialogue switch, but yeah, oh my goodness. Um, and her performance, like, it's it's almost not even like a character arc rather than her character unfolding uh right. it, over the course of the film where yeah you just see like the surface version of her as like one of the girls of this triad uh and then like over the 90 minutes her character is very definitively sculpted you know mm-hmm. uh and it, her character is so wonderful in this too like yeah, I, I don't know. Huge props to, I I think, the MVP of the movie for me. Uh, although, yeah. of course, Leslie Chung is fantastic, as always. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting how, like, uh, I forgot this the character name, but her male actor counterpart within mm-hmm. the movie mm-hmm. kind of gets that himself because you kind of get this fun... Uh, gossip you know we got this woman who's gossiping a little bit too much about yeah. uh one of the co-stars and gives a a bad impression to shu chi and so she's very wary with working with them and then at the end it kind of wraps up and like there's a moment where he brings his like family along and you're like oh this guy's a real wholesome dude you yeah know? and like it's not as well handled as you know shu chi's arc but it, it's something i found you know kind of breezy and enjoyable yeah i think that's elvis Choi as wa yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and he he's great. Just a huge lumbering presence, <laughs> and like so. There at the midpoint of the film, there's a fallout between the producer and the director Leslie Chung, and then they resolve it pretty quick and get back to work, which is also I think a very clever narrative way. Like they didn't drag that out into being the second act break or anything. It was right. just kind of a midpoint device to just restart the film as Leslie Chung's vision, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and. It, you know, Wa's character in the film within a film is just purely impotent. So seeing him just like laugh in embarrassment when Leslie Chung is asking him if he's ever, uh, you know, not been able to get it up <laughs> is so charming. And just like the way he interacts with his family is just like so heartfelt and his little kid running around the set and stuff. Uh, it's like really sincerely beautiful mm-hmm. uh and then of course the direction he gives Shu, i love how the stage lights just like oh, go down kind of. it is yeah. just like such a beautiful scene between the two of them uh because of course you know there is that romantic tension and karen mock thinks that he's cheating but he's not but it's that process of filmmaking where he does have to get close to her mm-hmm. and then the subject matter is eroticism of course uh so there's going to be that erotic tension so that scene there really plays it out to its fullest potential uh just really wonderfully it also works really great too because like that's you know the first moment he really gets through to her and like as a director and gives her like solid direction so it kind of works on like two fronts there oh yeah definitely um what's the hardest you ever come <laughs> eddie eddie what's the hardest you've ever come i want man. you to think about that for the rest of the podcast <laughs> 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 I, I do 15 love minutes that before we started recording there, there's a scene that opens on just like uh 
a shot of like a TV screen getting, you know, splooged on from a fake, you know, little air compressor thing. Uh, and uh, they're just like, does it look real enough? I don't know. You know, they're just testing out all the fake cum, which is, you know, a classic. That's a great gag yeah. right there. And it's it's very fun. It's like, oh, you know, they're having fun. They're in the groove of filmmaking, you know. And, uh, of course, it's capped off by the young uh, film worker in the can shirt, I believe, who uh, <laughs> uh, comes with his own specimen. <laughs> Delivering the goods. Someone's got to do it. Hey, you know, I didn't drink that much water today. I'm sorry. <laughs> I it was very disappointing to me when I found out that they use fake common pornos as a as a young teenager. I was very disappointed by that fact. Wait, they use fake cum? Yeah, I think so. Well, I don't. I mean, some. I don't know. There's every every production is different. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie's in shambles right now. What? <laughs> Rendered it, speechless. It make, this makes me think of the of the some of the best fake cum I've seen in like mainstream or like non-pornographic films like mm-hmm. i always think of the one in trouble every day oh when yeah Vincent gallows just jacking off and then it's oh like this God. it looks like white paint yeah <laughs> even in standard definition too man that yeah. if anything that's why we need the upgrade on trouble every day <laughs> anyway back to this one uh i also like that they go see a couple of uh soccer matches throughout this oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know as a crew as a bonding experience kind of yeah. and uh, they also bond uh, on a night out drinking where they become the drunken film crew, uh, which is great that, you know, drunken yeah. director, drunken cinematographer, etc. cetera. Uh, before... they... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I think you were about to say. Oh, and then they go back to the cinematographer's house uh, and just like watch uh, X-rated movies on VHS all night, which is amazing. You know, doing research with your homies. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's Pinkus. Yeah, that's what I thought. I I, I thought they were Japanese boxes because there's one good shot of like a VHS box. I was like, Mm. okay, that looks like Pinku box art, but (laughs) I can't be sure. There might, because I I don't really know that much about category three sex films. Most of the category three films that I'm aware of are uh, rated such for like violence and gore and stuff. Oh, so. I guess, yeah, the climax of the film, uh, they they rap and uh, then the the film set sets on fire as Leslie Chung is fantasizing about accepting the best director award at the Hong Kong film. Now, JT, did, has this ever happened to you while you were working on a film set? Imagining yourself <laughs> winning an Oscar. Um, a lot of time. I mean, I think this is why this is an important movie that you should show to like a young filmmaker. So they get their comeuppance. Yeah. And a lot of this is accepting your place and realizing like, I don't know. That's the true moment of hubris that you're too like fucking caught up in your own masturbatory fantasy that the set burns down around you. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a warning to all the clout sharks out there. I know a lot of you people are doing it for the wrong reason for the awards and you know, your your set's gonna burn down, whether that's a set or, you know, your life or whatever. So get on the right track. Uh they try to, you know, cobble together what was there, maybe get some funding to put it back together, you know. Uh the idea of, you know, cobbling it together and Putting it out as a short for the underground European market is floated, <laughs> which is pretty funny. <laughs> That's what like what Joaquin Phoenix is talking about in eight millimeter in the cage. <laughs> 
yeah, they go back to the football game, you know, uh, not exactly a conventional, like rousing motivational speech or anything like that. It's kind of more somber than that. Uh, but they end up rebuilding the set and like you uh, get this crazy abstract uh, sex scene that I guess is Leslie Chung's vision of what the film is after editing, you know, uh, transitioning from them on set to this where it's just, I don't know, these beautiful overlays with this crazy fogged out gauzy uh, cinematography. And uh, yeah, I, I, I thought it was like a really, really beautiful way to almost end the film uh, before then it wraps up with some direct address over some Woody Allen ass music <laughs> <laughs> about where all the characters are now, which I thought was a very strange thing to put in the movie, but like everything else, like although I might question it, it they execute it kind of as good as you can. Like I think I think it's still a really good ending, even if I may have preferred it ending on like the the sex scene with the yeah. movie. But I, I I still think it's a really fun ending. Yeah, I mean, ending with the notion of to make everyone comfortable on a porn set that why don't we all just be naked is really funny. Like. Um, yeah, never mind. No, I mean, it's a funny <laughs> final shot of just pulling out and just seeing a bunch of naked bodies. I mean, it's like, yeah. oh yeah, I forgot. This is like an X-rated film and they haven't really been indulging in the dirtiness that much even though it's a film about pornos mm-hmm. like uh and then it's just like oh let's just get like 50 dicks in the frame <laughs> it's just like like an idea i had when i was like 10 or 12 like thinking of when you think of a porn set it's like oh everyone's naked everyone's jacking off <laughs> everyone's jacking off <laughs> If if the porno you're making's good, you got some crew members jacking off in the corner. <laughs> trust me. <laughs> if you're making anything worth watching, now I've seen some behind the scenes movies where those guys get involved. Are you telling me that's fake too? <laughs> <laughs> Fluffers. Uh, anyway, let's let's move on from that. Enough dirty talk. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I guess we'll start with our guest Ryan. But is there anything you wanted to say to wrap up this film before you give it a bullet rating? Well, I think that it's just like it manages like i said manages all those tones well i think that uh laoching wen's cameo gets at a lot of the sort of almost anxiety i think that Derricky is definitely the more well-known of the two directors uh like he he also directed c'est la vie mon ami and uh one night in Mongkok, which i think are both quite uh which are also both beloved like this film actually was quite well critically received they did actually get those uh hong kong film award nominations uh, Damn. um yeah like you know it's like it's it you know sort of like a almost a crossover i guess you could say for a category three film but i think it, you know like at the same time he's also you know committing suicide in in his own film um so i think it really like it acknowledges all those anxieties and it definitely like almost it reminds me in a certain way especially with that sort of vision uh of of what you wanted to realize it reminds me of actually a film from the same year olivia Assayas's arm of like it gets at those sort of same anxieties and same sense of where you are in, within a particular film industry and within a particular just like the actual process of making art and i think that it takes all those seriously all those concerns seriously while also making an extremely entertaining and uh and fun film so yeah i, it, I love it I love it a lot. Um, wait, did Ryan give it bullets? Oh yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, four bullets. It's yeah, it's wonderful. I, I, 
I love it. That sounds so nice. I think I'm also going to give this movie four bullets. I like, I mean, to sort of echo what you're saying, Ryan, I like the varied amount of tones in this. And I think it's really hard to pull off like a lot of these shifts. And I, I don't know. I'm just, it's very impressive to me that a movie that can end on the note of just everyone naked on a porn set um, can get really intimate and emotional in respect to like the, the notion of like accepting your place as like an artist and not being like able to do like, amazing like big budget pictures and also where the notion of like family plays into that and the fact that it's not only represented uh in the director's own life and his relationship with his girlfriend but you get the larger uh picture of both of the lead actors in this that really um works out really well to a strong emotional core that surprised me in something that like gets so zany um throughout Mm -hmm. What about you, Malcolm? I'm gonna give this one three and a half bullets. I liked it around a lot. I mean, it does it does bounce a, around a lot, and I feel like I do like the tonal shifts for the most part. But there's I can't even really name anything in particular. But just sometimes I feel like it just shifts around a little too much. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I mean, I really like this. I like how uh, meta it is. But for something I you know I don't I know you know a base level amount, but I don't know too much. So it's kind of fun this madness is like kind of new and fun to me mm-hmm. and uh yeah i don't know it's a film full of life yeah <laughs> eddie what do you what, what do you want to rate yeah, definitely well i also wanted to say because we didn't mention the scene uh where the legalities get involved because mm-hmm. uh yeah they're, they're like shooting uh a scene uh where sh- uh shuchi's uh topless and then the cops barge in and it is just a funny image of just like a p- porn being shot and the cops <laughs> barge in guns drawn yeah. uh that that's just a really funny image but of course karen mock uh is there uh you know with those cops and tells them no it's okay he's cool yeah i like i yeah. like how that ends with like a, a group picture and that's one of my favorite <laughs> devices in movies i love when for some reason people take a group picture it's funny and oh, they line so up for great. a picture yeah one of my favorite yeah. things ever it's great yeah, yeah. uh and yeah. i think this is a really good one it's a really funny one uh this is a great movie four bullets uh, i i really love it i i think i've said enough on it but i think it's I don't know, at that point in Hong Kong cinema, uh, not just taking the temperature, but just like having fun and indulging in that period of time and also uh, having a really personal story at the backbone of it. Uh, And yeah, using all the talent at your disposal uh, in front of and behind the camera. It's a really good looking movie, like slyly too, you know? Uh, There's a really great split diopter shot when he's writing his uh, scenario, which also I will say is pretty funny because like his actual written notes are all, you know, Chinese characters, Mm -hmm. but the only English characters that he writes is just the word sex. And he writes like like, three times in between different Chinese characters. I'm like, okay, Uh I know what <laughs> he's writing some fire. I, I know what he's talking about. <laughs> but while he's writing that, you know, uh, Karen Walk is just brooding in the background across the apartment. Like, what are you doing, dude? Like the scene yeah. where he's about to sleep out in the hallway because he's busy writing pornographic scenarios. <laughs> which, folks, we've all been there. <laughs> It's a little dramatic of him. <laughs> I, I loved that. I loved him sleeping in the hallway. I thought that was really yeah. funny. Um, yeah, great. Let's see. I'm going to pull up uh, the email, the inbox oh, wow. for everyone's favorite segment, the email segment. You can always reach out to us at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. 
We do have one. Oh, okay. Oh, hell yeah. From Laura Jacovis. It says, Hi, boys. I've uh, been loving the show. Was just on a flight to LA last night and watched Kitty Green's Weinstein in the Shadows movie, The Assistant. <laughs> oh. Uh, have you guys seen The Assistant? No, I've no. heard about it. Oh, okay. I've been mean I thought, to. I know of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you yeah. like had this movie she had, like it was called like Weinstein Secrets. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, Weinstein in the Shadows, I thought it was like a Family Guy episode because there's one called When You Wish Upon a Weinstein. <laughs> oh God. It's the dark inverse of that episode. Yeah. It's the it's the <laughs> Stewie Joker mode of that. <laughs> anyway. Oh, uh I found the movie very impactful. So when it uh, when it ended, it felt too crass to just jump into whatever sitcom the airline was recommending to me. I opted listening to the moody end credits and sit in the flick for a bit. I couldn't help but notice one J.T. White credited <laughs> as first assistant <laughs> camera operator or something like that. Congrats, J.T. Yeah, well, congrats, yeah. dude. Uh, what yeah. else are you hiding from your fans? Please list your most notable credits. <laughs> Thank you. Laura, wow, um, uh, that is a great question. I'm gonna pull up Malcolm Baum IMDb because I know <laughs> there's he's got a some student film credits on there. I have an unreleased short film that has a cameo from Jeff Tremaine, so that's my biggest claim to fame. Oh, really? That's yeah. pretty big. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Hey, why? Why, why <laughs> release it? <laughs> is it owned by Gorilla Flicks? No. <laughs> why don't you release it? I don't know. I just gotta. Do it, I guess. I don't know. All I see is your <laughs> camera and electrical department on windswept. Yeah, that's that's funny because it's like, um, what? He, someone on that set just knew me and kind of just invited me to hang out, and so I just, I, I basically just talked to the uh, assistant director, as everyone else did camera and lighting. Damn. Yeah, dude, JT, you're fucking popping <laughs> off. Like, because like, you're known for True Grit Live, which is a film that you and Nico made. Yeah, uh, I'd but, recommend, too. Yeah. Go check it out. But then after that, you got Heather, first assistant camera, A Prayer, assistant camera, <laughs> Big Dogs TV series, eight episodes of first assistant camera. Dude, 2020, I know the, the pandemic's been, been hitting a lot I've of people, but you have, like, under wraps. you have like five credits in 2020. There is like a... I've been meaning to clear this up on my IMDb page, but I also really don't care. I'm like confused. There's another JT White that obviously has a more illustrious <laughs> career true. than I do. <laughs> I honestly think you don't deserve your cut of the Patreon if you're getting this money. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know what union you know pay is, uh, dude. Are you kidding me? You worked on John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch? <laughs> <laughs> that, that gets the one eyeball emoji from me. That's all I'm saying there. Yeah, what kind of... That title's a little... I don't know. I'm not comfortable with it. Yeah. No, I... Oh, my God. John Mulaney's insistence on hanging out with children like makes me really uncomfortable. That's all I'm going to say. Keep a lookout for that. I have one IMDb credit as Eddie Averill. Uh, Where Do I Stand is a music video that I was a second unit director or <laughs> assistant director. <laughs> wow. They kind of they they juiced up your credits there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just chilling. Uh, that's true. I was doing transport on that, actually. I was. Uh, it was in a loft in downtown LA, and I was picking up the talent at the bus stop and driving them <laughs> to the loft. <laughs> I got... Um, 
you know, unmentioned friend of the show, David Cahill. We use we he procured he once procured a place for us to do the podcast once, so we have to thank him for that. Uh, he's working at a, as a PA on a CBS show, and he has a lot of downtime. And he's been watching Ozu movies on his phone on silent, just like Vincent Gallo. Been going Ozu mode and Vincent Gallo mode at the same time. Hell so, yeah. He's bringing real cinema back to television. Wow, that's great. <laughs> uh, Ryan, do you have any IMDb credits? I do not. I actually just checked just to make sure I do not. But I, I do make short. I did make short films. I mean, I, guess I might in the future. I'm actually editing one right now, which I shot back in 2018, which I, Ooh. but which I haven't managed to uh, get the get the get the right willpower and uh, mindset to work on. <laughs> uh, so I mean, you know, I'm working on that so damn look out for a short film by ryan swen coming to a computer near you yeah i've I've made a i've made a number before but it's still definitely be the longest one Uh, i'm looking at my aunt's imdb right now (laughs) she got okay so uh that concludes the email segment i don't think we have any spam otherwise (laughs) thank you for leading us down an imdb hole uh you can always reach out to us on twitter at extended clip 69 uh ryan thank you so much for coming on the show do you have anything to promote or a place where the people can find you of course well yeah thank you so much for having me back again uh yeah, this is I, I love I love doing this. Uh, my Twitter is swen underscore ryan. Uh, I have my own. I, my, my website is uh, Taipei Mansions, where I you know, sort of link to my various disorganized lists. Not not disorganized, but you know, sprawling <laughs> lists. Uh, and and also my actual writing as a critic and so on and so forth. And I have my own podcast, Callous and Witness, uh, dedicated to the personal ex dedicated to my own personal explorations of the New York Film Festival. Uh, definitely very uh, sporadic airings, uh, but the episodes are long, and I think there's a lot of work that goes into it. Uh, it's definitely a different experience from uh, guesting on here, but it's... Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I will say, Catalyst, despite being the host of a raucous and rowdy <laughs> outlaw <laughs> film podcast, I'm a fan of Catalyst and Witness, so I, I give Thank it my high recommendation. Put some variety in your life. Yeah. Go no, check it out. Put on a top hat and monocle. Go to the New York Film Festival <laughs> in your memory. <laughs> oh, I also wanted to say, uh, check out Kitty Green's The Assistant. It was a lot of fun working on that one. Uh, Julia Gardner, she's so sweet. Uh, always says hello to you on set, remembers your name and everything. Uh, it's a good one, folks. Uh, next week, uh, our December run of returning champions continues. Evan Amaral is coming back on the show. Hey, another Georgia person. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're going to yeah. be talking about the night of counting the years. Oh, it- Wow. And it's a long night. I know. I, I stumbled on that title. I'm yeah. far further away from my laptop than usual, which vacancy is not very far. And I think I do I think I no longer have twenty twenty fish. Kind of a cheap excuse. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't really. Anyway. Ugh. The night of counting the years and Ernest Dickerson's bones. Oh nice. Yeah, oh, friend of the pod, Ernest Dickerson. Uh, we actually haven't talked about any Ernest Dickerson movies on this podcast, which is crazy. Uh, we've mentioned them on the middle segment, I think, uh, but ne- never on main, so I can't wait for that. And, uh, yeah, so we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, a- any closing words, boys? Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> Th- thank you for listening. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right.